the Ayatollah Khomeini, the famous founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran, was 28 years old when he married his bride, who was 10, 10 years old. He also recommended that uh, Muslim men marry girls before they reached puberty. In other words, when they're nine, 10 years old. Now, this also is an imitation of Muhammad as depicted in Islamic tradition. When Muhammad was 51 years old, he married a six-year-old girl named Aisha and went, consummated the marriage, or in other words, raped her, because, of course, she had no way to refuse consent when he was 54 and she was nine. Because Muhammad is the excellent example, as specified in Quran 3321, as I noted before, that also is an excellent example. And there is considered to be no moral difficulty with seizing a child and raping the child because Muhammad did it. I'm very, very, very happy to receive Robert Spencer again. It's been almost a year that he had his first talk with us. He's an author of 21 books, two of which are used as FBI training material. To name a few of his books, uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades, The Truth About Muhammad, which is the talk today, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Uh, most welcome, Robert. Very, very honored to receive you again. And today's talk is based on his book, The Truth About Muhammad. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here again. It's always good to speak with you. Uh, when we speak about Muhammad, of course, it is a, an, a controversial issue, not because there is any doubt about what the Islamic texts actually teach about Muhammad. That's quite clear. Anyone can get them and read them. But there is a great deal of misinformation and disinformation about Muhammad, just as there is about jihad and about the history of Islam and jihad, and a great deal of other related issues. So, for example, uh, Karen Armstrong, who is a very prominent historian in the United States, in England, rather, she wrote a book several years ago, actually two books about Muhammad, in which she said, among other things, that Muhammad is comparable to Gandhi uh, in being a man of peace and in striving to bring peace to all those around him. Uh, she could only have said such a thing to an audience that didn't know anything about Muhammad as he is depicted in the Islamic text, because every bit of what ISIS, the Islamic State does, or the Taliban, or uh, the ISI in Pakistan, or any number of other organizations that are dedicated to following Muhammad and implementing his teachings. Everything that they do is based upon Islamic texts. And ISIS is actually quite scrupulous in following the teachings of Muhammad and the actions of Muhammad as exemplary in their actions, in what they do around the world, even the most horrifying things that they do. This is something that is denied or assumed to be false by most of the intelligence and law enforcement authorities in the world. As a matter of fact, you noted in, the, in introducing me very kindly that uh, several of my books were used in FBI training materials. That was up until about 10 years ago. 
and then they dropped them because the Obama administration determined that they were going to not have any mention of Islam or jihad in connection with counterterror training because Islam has nothing to do with terrorism. Unfortunately, the terrorists would tell you different. And they would tell you that Islam has everything to do with terrorism and that everything that they're doing is based on Islam. And when we look at the life of Muhammad as depicted in the Islamic texts, we can see that. Muhammad, according to the earliest available Islamic sources, was born in 570 in Arabia, in Mecca. And in the year 610, when he was 40 years old, he was praying uh, in a cave on a mountain outside Mecca. And there appeared to him a being. In standard Islamic history, this is represented as the angel Gabriel. And uh, according to Islamic sources, it was Gabriel, the angel, who appeared to Muhammad to give him the Quran over a period of 23 years subsequent to the first meeting. However, if you look at the earliest records, there is no mention of Gabriel, and the being is not identified. Muhammad is also depicted as being absolutely terrified by the vision that he had received, and not knowing if he was possessed by a demon, which is a strange response to having an encounter with an angel. He then went home shivering with fear and told his wife Khadija to cover him with a blanket because he was trembling. And uh, he told her what had happened. Ultimately, she took him to her uncle, Waraka bin Nalfal, who was a Christian priest. And he explained to Muhammad, and all this, remember, is according to the earliest Islamic sources, that he was a prophet and that that was Gabriel. However, there's a very strange aspect to the stories, and that is that Gabriel is terrifying. In their first encounter, he, it says that he pressed Muhammad so hard that he thought he was going to die. Now, ordinarily, when one encounters, in, in various religious traditions, when there are encounters with spiritual beings, when one is terrified and threatened and frightened, generally that being is not one that is bringing good. And this is the dilemma that is presented to us in the earliest Islamic texts. This is supposed to be the angel, of, angel Gabriel, the messenger of Allah, the only God. And clearly, however, he's working on the basis of violence and intimidation. He's terrifying Muhammad into submission. And then later, there are other strange aspects of the story. Gabriel starts to visit him regularly, and then when he stops, Muhammad goes to the top of a high mountain, and he's going to throw himself off and commit suicide. This is also a strange reaction to what is supposed to be a benign heavenly being. In any case, Gabriel is thus identified visits Muhammad on a regular basis for the next 23 years and gives him what becomes the Quran, the holy book of Islam. And in the Quran, the holy book of Islam, we see the same violence and intimidation that Gabriel first displayed to Muhammad in the first encounter that they had. It's the same thing all the way through, that the prophet Muhammad is supposed to submit and be the slave of Allah. And then the non-Muslims 
are supposed to submit and be the slaves of the Muslims. And all of the whole, the whole superstructure of Islam, women are supposed to submit and be the slaves to men. The whole thing is based on submission and intimidation and fear. Nowadays, of course, we see this in the Taliban very clearly. And the Taliban believe that they are carrying out the teachings of Muhammad and following the example of Muhammad. And so Muhammad said that Allah will pour molten lead into the ears of people who listen to music. And so they go and break musical instruments. This creates fear and intimidation among people who listen to music and the musicians themselves. And in microcosm, it is the same phenomenon all over again, that the people are terrified into submission. And that is the, the Islamic vision for the world. Very briefly, the career of Muhammad started out in Mecca with him preaching. Now, this is, again, a source of a great deal of, or the focus, I should say, of a great deal of misinformation and disinformation. Because Muhammad is preaching, he only gathers a small band of followers by the first 12 years of his career as a prophet from 610 to 622. And he's preaching tolerance. In the Quran, in chapter 109, it says, Say to the unbelievers, I do not worship what you worship, and you do not worship what I worship. You will not worship what I worship, and I will not worship what you worship. To you, your religion, and to me, mine. Now, that is rather grudgingly put, but it's nonetheless a statement of tolerance. Let's leave each other alone. We have different points of view. However, this was only something that Muhammad preached when the Muslims were a small band. When they grew larger, and later on, when Muhammad went to from Mecca to Medina, another city in Arabia, he began to preach warfare against unbelievers. When the Muslims grew in number and gained power. Now, this is very important because in, in Islam, everything Muhammad did is exemplary. Chapter 33, verse 21 of the Quran says that Muhammad is an excellent example for you. An excellent example is not qualified. In other words, there is no limitation on that excellent example. Everything Muhammad did is good and to be imitated by the Muslim. Consequently, when the Muslims are a small band and Muhammad is preaching tolerance, when you have Muslims who are a small group in a particular nation, they will preach peace and tolerance. When they grow in numbers and power, then you will find they are preaching a very different message. Muhammad in the year 622 was invited, according to Islamic tradition, by the people of Yathrib, which was a nearby city, which later on became renamed as Medina or Medinat Nabi, the city of the prophet. He was invited to come and be a political and military leader of the city, as well as the, the, the religious leader, and they would convert to Islam. Once there, he began to preach that Allah was giving him revelations about the necessity in the first place to fight defensive wars against the unbelievers and then to fight offensive wars against the unbelievers in order to bring them under the hegemony of Islam, to convert them to Islam, or if they refuse to convert to Islam, then to make them submit to the hegemony of Islamic law and to recognize their degraded status in this world as well as in the next as the punishment from Allah for refusing to accept Islam. The Quran is full of 
warnings that the unbelievers will be punished in this world and not just in hellfire. And the punishment in this world is to be enforced by the Muslims themselves who will terrorize, strike terror in the hearts of the unbelievers. This is in chapter 8, verse 60 of the Quran. And bring them into submission to Islamic law, which guarantees them a second-class status. Now, this is something that Muslims have put into practice throughout history. In the first era of Islam, there were the caliphates. The caliphs were, caliph means successor. And the caliphs were the successors of Muhammad as the political, military, and spiritual leaders of the Islamic world. And just as Muhammad did, they led offensive wars against the neighboring states in order to bring them under the hegemony of the Islamic world. When the uh, Arabs first came out of Arabia, after the death of Muhammad in 632, Islam was actually in an inchoate state and was not fully formulated dogmatically as it is today. However, those conquests in Islamic tradition have been ascribed to the imitation of Muhammad, who called for warfare against unbelievers, making the heart of the Islamic world, the Middle East, North Africa, and Persia, out of what had been Christian and Zoroastrian areas. And they were conquered. Then, according to the Quran, they were subjugated under the hegemony of the Muslims. The non-Muslims were made to submit. This is in direct exemplary imitation of Muhammad as being, as commanding that Muslims must fight against the unbelievers. First, invite them to accept Islam. Then if they refuse, ask them to pay the jizya, which is a tax specified in chapter 9, verse 29 of the Quran, a tax in tribute to the Muslims as a sign of one's submission to their hegemony. And if they refuse both, to go to war against them. This is the paradigmatic basis for Islamic warfare that conquered a tremendous area of the world. By 732, 100 years after Muhammad died, there is a massive Islamic empire stretching from Spain into India. And of course, the jihad against India was especially particularly virulent because they were not the, the Hindus in India were not considered people of the book. That is the Quran's designation for Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians. And they were therefore ev treated even more violently and not immediately given the option to submit, although that was later extended to them because the sheer numbers made it impossible for the Muslims to kill them all, although there were certainly attempts to do so. Now, all of this comes from Muhammad's life. War, the war and the conquest is what he pursued in Arabia, and then his followers, in imitation of him, brought it to the rest of the world. There are also other aspects of Muhammad as exemplary. For example, in Afghanistan in 2003 or 4, when the uh, Taliban was toppled, supposedly, or toppled at least temporarily, the uh, American aid workers went into refugee camps of the displaced people in Afghanistan, and they found that half the girls of second grade age were married, and all of the girls, third grade age and above, were married. And child marriage is a phenomenon all over the Islamic world. The Ayatollah Khomeini, the famous founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran, was 28 years old when he married his bride, who was 10, 10 years old. He also recommended that 
Muslim men marry girls before they reached puberty. In other words, when they're nine, ten years old. Now, this also is an imitation of Muhammad as depicted in Islamic tradition. When Muhammad was 51 years old, he married a six-year-old girl named Aisha. And went consummated the marriage, or in other words, raped her, because of course she had no way to refuse consent when he was 54 and she was nine. Because Muhammad is the excellent example, as specified in Quran 33:21, as I noted before, that also is an excellent example. And there is considered to be no moral difficulty with seizing a child and raping the child, because Muhammad did it. Also, there is the sexual enslavement of non-Muslim women, or what we would say in the modern world, particularly in India, love jihad in various permutations, but its roots go back to Muhammad also. There is a famous story, for example, of the raid of Khaibar. Khaibar was an oasis in northern Arabia where the Jewish tribes that Muhammad had previously exiled from Medina had gone to take refuge. But Muhammad ultimately went and invaded Kaibar. And uh, incidentally, it's worth noting that he arrived there at night, but waited to strike until the morning because he wanted to hear if there would be the Islamic call to prayer in the morning. If there was not, he would invade. If there was, he would not. Because he was commanded, in his own words, according to a tradition, to fight against the people who, until they confess, that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger. So if the people of Kaibar had confessed that there was no God but Allah and Muhammad was the messenger, he wouldn't have fought them. He did not hear the Islamic call to prayer, so he invaded. When he invaded, he wanted to get the money. So he went to the treasurer of the community. The Muslims captured him. His name was Kinana. And he had his, his followers build a fire on Kinana's chest to torture him until he revealed where the treasury was. Kinana refused to do so and was ultimately put to death. Then his wife, Safiya bint Huyai, was captured and given to Muhammad. Now this is a woman who's, who's not only her husband was killed, but her father was also just killed by the Islamic warriors in Kaibar. And yet Islamic tradition says that Muhammad married her, consummated the marriage on the spot. Can you imagine this, this, this absolutely ghastly scene of bo dead bodies everywhere and Muhammad being so consumed with lust that he has to stop in the midst of this, these dead bodies and rape this woman. But this also is exemplary behavior because Muhammad is the excellent example of conduct. Consequently, you have all over Europe, for example, nowadays, with the mass Muslim migration since 2015, a huge increase in the sexual assaults and rapes of non-Muslim women there. And you have this, of course, in India with the kidnapping, the abduction of Hindu girls, Sikh girls, Christian girls, and they're to submit it, subjected to the same treatment. This is all because this is something that Muhammad did. And it's also specified in the Quran in chapter four, verse three, that you can take uh, marry up to four women, but also take the captives of the right hand. 
and the captives of the right hand are these infidel girls, specified in chapter 33, verse 50 of the Quran to be the spoils of war, that is, seized in battle just like Safiya bin Huyai and used in this manner. All of these things come back to Muhammad. Many years ago, you don't hear it so much anymore, but many years ago, right after the United States got involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were many news accounts that actually had Muslim apologists claiming that beheading was completely against Islam, and it had nothing to do with Islam. But this was, once again, as is so often the case, based on counting on the ignorance of the audience, not to be able to understand that they were being deceived. In reality, beheading is specified in the Quran. When you meet the unbelievers, strike the necks. Chapter 47, verse 4. Consequently, the Muslims, according to Islamic tradition, Muhammad practiced beheading. He beheaded between 600 and 900 of the Jews of the Qurayza tribe that he claimed had betrayed him. And this was in accord with the Quran. Then in accord with the example of Muhammad and the Quran, you have beheading whenever there is a conflict between Muslims and non-Muslims. You see this all the time. As a matter of fact, just, just uh, this morning, before beginning this program, I was reading a news article about the protests in Kazakhstan that you may have heard about. And uh, 12 policemen were killed by the protesters. One of them was beheaded. And uh, when you see a story like that, it is absolutely a direct result of the example of Muhammad. And of course, that's just one very small example of hundreds and thousands of such stories from all over the world that can be adduced in this connection. Uh, Muhammad also taught that anyone who leaves Islam is to be killed. Whoever changes his religion, kill him. As a result of that teaching, which is also continued and taught by all these schools and the schools of law and the various sects of Islam, they all still teach whoever changes his religion, kill him. Those who leave Islam are under an immediate death threat. And you can look at what has happened with Wasim Rizvi since he left Islam and all the, in the inundation of death threats that he has received. This is because of Muhammad. Every bit of the activity that you can see from Muslims in the, in the modern world today is a tribute, it can be traced directly back to the example of Muhammad. Consequently, this is the primary responsibility of non-Muslim governing officials, law enforcement officials, and intelligence officials. If they want to deal with this problem adequately, they have to confront the fact that these values are what are being taught in mosques all over the world. Because Muhammad, as the excellent example, is still being taught everywhere. It's just as a matter of course. Every religion is going to teach what it teaches, and this is what Islam teaches. But there is tremendous, almost universal denial about this. And every non-Muslim politician in the West, uh, from, from Merkel, who is no longer Chancellor of Germany, but I'm sure that her successor is just as bad, Macron in France, Boris Johnson in the UK, uh, certainly Joe Biden, and all their predecessors, with the arguable exception of Trump, but not the, not the complete exception of Trump. Every last one of them teaches, and the Pope as well, and every Western authority 
teaches that Islam is a religion of peace that has nothing to do with terrorism. I'm sure this is true also in India. Every non-Muslim state seems to be absolutely fanatically committed to the idea that Islam is peaceful. The first thing that we have to acknowledge is that that's not true. That Muhammad taught warfare, he engaged in warfare, and he left an example of warfare and subjugation for his people. And that if we do not confront this, if we're not realistic about this, it's just going to keep going on. One thing that could be done by non-Muslim states, if they had the courage, would be to say that Muslims are perfectly free to practice their religions, that practice their religion in the in these various countries, but only insofar as they do not conflict with the law of the land. And so efforts to engage in violence against non-Muslims, to subjugate them, to impose Sharia would be unacceptable and prosecuted fully. Were that to happen, along with prosecution of child marriage, polygamy, and so much, so much else that comes from Muhammad's example, the world would be a very different place. I can give you one example in closing. There was a camp, a training camp discovered in the United States a few years ago in New Mexico in a remote area. And the training camp was actually taking children and training them to be suicide bombers. And the idea was is that they would go into schools and blow themselves up and kill large numbers of other children. This was being run by a man named Siraj Wahaj, Siran Ibn, Siraj Ibn Wahaj, who was the son of a very prominent Islamic spokesman in the United States, Siraj Wahaj. And Siraj Ibn Wahaj had several wives. He had actually come to the attention of law enforcement previously for leaving one wife without divorcing her and marrying again. Polygamy is ostensibly illegal in the United States. But because the United States is primarily interested in not appearing to be Islamophobic, nothing was done about Siraj ibn Wahaj's polygamy. And so he went to New Mexico and started this jihad training camp. If his polygamy had been prosecuted, as would be normal because it is illegal, then he wouldn't have been free to start the jihad training camp. If the United States and other states were consistent in applying their own laws to Muslims, which they are not doing because they're afraid, they're intimidated, and they want to accommodate them, then there would be a great deal less jihad activity around the world. But that is uh, unfortunately just the opposite of what is happening. Uh, on that happy note, I will uh, conclude. And if you have questions, we can discuss them now. Thank you. You did not speak about Zainab. Zainab is uh, a wife of Muhammad, and it's an interesting story because it coincides in many, many ways with the child marriage to Aisha and the, uh, the rape of Safiya. It's uh, a license for a certain kind of libertinism and a justification for all sorts of behavior that virtually every culture in the world would declare to be immoral. Uh, Zainab was the daughter-in-law of Muhammad. This is what you asked me about. Is that correct? I just want to make sure I heard you right. Yes. She was the wife of Zaid, who was the adopted son of Muhammad. But at one point, Muhammad, according to Islamic tradition, went to visit his son, Zaid, who was his adopted son. And he did not find him at home. He found Zainab at home. And he was, she was not fully dressed when she answered the door. And he was overcome, the story says, by her beauty. 
Zayd ultimately came to see him and said, if you are so taken with her, I will divorce her and you can marry her. And he said, oh, no, no, no. Keep your wife and fear Allah. But then Allah, always ready to accommodate Muhammad, told Muhammad, I, why are you refusing what I want to give you? I, I want you to marry Zainab. And he emerged from his trance of revelation and he said, who will go tell Zainab the good news that Allah has married her to me? And so he married his daughter-in-law. There were, this was scandalous even then, unlike the child marriage. And as a result, he had to outlaw adoption. He said, and this is all in chapter 33 of the Quran, chapter 33, verse 4, and 33, verse 37. He said, you, you can't have adoption. And Zayd is no longer his son. Zayd was known for years as Zayd ibn Muhammad, but had to go back to being called by the name of his birth father, Zayd ibn Haritha. No adoption in Islam. But all this was only because Muhammad wanted once again to satisfy his lust in taking this woman who was his daughter-in-law. Unfortunately, this has condemned many, many uh, children to lives of great misery because they can't be adopted. They can't go into a family that's not their own. This is yet another example of how the, uh, the, the exemplary character of Muhammad has a extraordinary destructive effect on human beings all over the world. I like the way you continue to say the exemplary character, perfect character. Uh, there is a comment by George Carlin, very famous one. He says, religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of the day. And the invisible man has a special list of some things that he does not want you to do. And if you do any of those things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever, forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. He loves you. And he needs money. He always needs money. He's all powerful, all perfect, all knowing, all wise. And, but somehow he just can't handle money. And in well, Islam, perfect. I will also say that that invisible man is very interested in your bedroom. Yes, very. <laughs> but it's not just money either. Uh, the Quran in chapter 9, verse 14 and 15, it says, fight them and Allah will punish them by your hands. And so to take the, the gentleman's very entertaining characterization, you have the invisible man who is all powerful and created everything, not able to punish those who displease him on his own and consequently needs to enlist the uh, services of other human beings in order to punish those who displease him. You see, note this, this is a very important verse that is often overlooked. Fight them, and Allah will punish them by your hands. It's chapter 9, verse 14. In other words, the Muslims are the executors of the wrath of Allah. They are the ones who are charged by Allah to punish the rest of us for not believing in Allah. And this is a great reason why there's so much of this violence by Muslims against non-Muslims, because that's their job. They are supposed to punish us. Okay. My my question, which you have partly discussed in your lecture, is why developed countries fail to take notice of Islam's narrative that Quran mandates Muslims to spread their religion by power of sword. 
they don't have political will to support country like india from onslaught of pakistan is it their money power muslims money power and fear and why the examples given by you are not told to the common man non muslim thank you uh, why the political nations are not siding with india why us fails to take an action against pakistan and why is it that common people are not told about the examples that you mentioned there seems to be a very powerful force that does not want these things to be known and it i do believe has a great deal to do with money as you noted that uh the muslim nations are some of them are very wealthy and have close relations with the united states economic relations uh the saudis and their oil and so on and the saudis in particular have spent millions and millions of dollars in american universities and so you have a huge alawid bin al al prince alawid bin talal center for muslim christian understanding in georgetown university in washington dc very prominent university in harvard you have another alawid center alawid is a billionaire a saudi billionaire and he's a hardline muslim and so when he gives these millions to the american universities he wants them to tow his line and they're happy to do so because all they want is the money and so american universities instead of teaching the truth about these things they will teach that islam is a religion of peace and that the problem is all islamophobes which means you and me who speak terrible things about muhammad and islam and make people dislike it and this is not just the american universities either a few years back it was revealed that uh favorable coverage of various issues had been bought that is the american media cnn and the others were paid money to give favorable coverage to various issues when i saw that i immediately thought well i'll bet that's the same thing that's happening when it comes to jihad because there is nothing but favorable coverage of islam and whenever there's a jihad attack in the west the stories are all about the fear of backlash against innocent muslims and not about the people the victims or jihad at all and so i do believe a great deal of this is that these people are bought that for the sake of money they are not telling the truth about these issues uh is a matter of fact there's been and it is the islamic groups have thought of everything we have to give them credit for planning there is not an issue not not an area of society where they have not entered and turned the narrative in the way that they want it so why do we not speak why are people not told about these things in the schools if you read textbooks in the united states and i'm sure this is true elsewhere also islam is peaceful islam is tolerant islam spread all over the world because it's so wonderful whereas all the other religions are given very negative treatments and this is in american public school textbooks why because islamic groups have targeted the textbook manufacturers and told them we want to help you avoid islamophobia in your textbooks and they've turned them around to make them into essentially instruments of proselytization it's all about the money a question from bhaskar when and how did the ideal of calling islam a religion of peace emerge that's a, a interesting question it actually comes from the 19th century there was a book published in the 19th century called islam the religion of peace 
And it was uh, the first effort in a major propaganda effort to fool non-Muslims about the nature of Islam. Uh, it, it's gained particular energy and impetus in the uh, beginning in the 1970s in the West, at the very least. There was a professor, Edward Said, who was actually a Christian Arab, not a Muslim at all. And Edward Said wrote a book called Orientalism. And Orientalism was all about how any criticism of the Islamic world from the West was just part of the colonial project. It was colonialist oppression. And as a result, if, um, if, if Westerners did not want to be colonialist and racist and imperialist, then they could not say anything critical about Islam because that would be an imposition of Western values onto the Islamic world. Now, of course, you and I know this is nonsense because we are from very different parts of the world, and yet we encounter Islam in the same way and see that it's aggressive, belligerent, violent, expansionist, supremacist, and so on. And this has nothing to do with colonialism. It has nothing to do, you're, you're just as much victims of colonialism as any Islamic group, if you want to talk, speak in those terms. It has to do with the nature of Islam itself. But this was obscured by Edward Said to a tremendous degree. His, his book, Orientalism, had immense influence all over uh, Western academia and the Western intelligentsia. Now, at the same time, there was the push to say that Islam was a religion of peace that came from George W. Bush after 9-11 on September 17th, 2001. He went to a mosque in Washington, D.C., and he said, Islam is peace, and we want to emphasize that this attack is nothing to do with Islam. The idea also comes from the fact that Islam really is a religion of peace, but not in the way that we understand peace. The idea is that Muslims must wage war against the whole non-Muslim world and subjugate all non-Muslims under the hegemony of Islam, and then there will be peace. And so Islam ultimately has the goal of peace by conquest and subjugation, therefore it's a religion of peace. But all this is ultimately just an attempt at deception. And it's very effective because most, if, if you're not a Muslim, most people would not want to not be interested in reading the Quran or reading about the life of Muhammad. Mostly, only Muslims are interested in such things. And so they're able to prey upon the ignorance of the non-Muslim and use this lie to foster complacency and to make us think, well, there's not really a problem because the vast majority is peaceful. And my friend Ahmed that I work with, he's a wonderful fellow. He's very gentle. He would never hurt anyone. So therefore, there's nothing to be concerned about regarding terrorism. But this is, this is a massive, extraordinarily successful deception. Uh, why don't women in Islam don't speak up? I mean, they must be reading Quran. They must be reading all these uh, quotes and, you know, they must be knowing what exactly it means. But then how are they fooled? It's a very, very small percentage which actually comes out and speaks against Islam. Uh, in order to criticize Islam, a Muslim woman would have to have a moral standpoint separate from Islam, which a Muslim woman is not likely to have. In other words, when we look at the world and we think about it in terms of what's good and what's evil or what's right and what's wrong, we do so based on our own moral assumptions and beliefs. And so a Muslim woman is taught Islamic assumptions and beliefs. And so she's taught that she's a secondary human being 
to, to, to serve, be a slave of the husband, to be beaten if she's disobedient, to uh, have polygamy if the husband wants. Uh, it's and most of the women, most of the hellfire, most of the people in hellfire are women and so on. These things are taught to her. This is holy writ. This is what Allah says, the only God and the prophet, the perfect man and the excellent example. So consequently, there's no standpoint on which the woman can have, there's no standpoint the woman has to judge Islam. To judge Islam is already to, to, to place yourself outside the fold. And that means that Allah will punish you in this world and the next. So this is a very powerful appeal. You take, for example, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And of course, previous to 1979, it was a Western-style secular democracy. And the women did not wear hijab. And so a lot of women protested when they said, you have to wear hijab. And they didn't want to wear it. And many women were brought into line by the mullahs telling them that if they did not wear hijab, they would be suspended by their hair upside down in hell forever. Now imagine if you really believed that. It sounds ludicrous to us, but imagine if you really thought that there's an Allah and he's, there's a hell and he's going to put you in it upside down by your hair. If you don't wear this thing, you'll wear it. It's, it's, it only creates a difficulty when you have Muslim women move to a non-Muslim culture and then they're confronted by a different uh, way to live. And sometimes that creates difficulty. That's actually when you have honor killings and so on. In India, as well as there's been uh, some that have happened in the United States and elsewhere, they uh, start to live in a different way. And then their brothers and their father, they kill them because they have dishonored the family by living in a way that's un-Islamic. And this is something that's based on the Quran where a boy is killed and he, the, the killer says, I did it because he was going to grow up to be unrighteous and his parents deserved a righteous child. So uh, it's very difficult for a Muslim woman without any other way to look at the world to criticize Islam. Um, yes, Dr. Spencer, wonderful talk as usual. Uh, my question was uh, a bit related to the topic that you had mentioned. Uh, so, you know, the, the narrative that's been peddled widely through social media that the extreme form of Islam is primarily due to the Wahhabi ideology propagated by the Saudis, right? Because they have funded madrasas all over the world and you're seeing even in India, Wahhabism seeping more in the last 20 years than before. So uh, there's also this narrative being peddled that, that, that the Saudi prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, is taking measures to temper the extreme Wahhabist ideology. So how much, do you, uh, how much truth do you think there is to that? I mean, is, uh, is he making a, a, an earnest effort or, you know, is this just media propaganda? And the second part of that question is that, you know, we know that the, the leftist uh, stream, academic stream in the United States is they're sympathetic to, you know, the Islamist jihadist uh, cause, but they seem to be, uh, at you know, uh, anti-MBS. So I really don't understand that dynamic. And uh, that was the second part of my question. Thank you. Yes. Uh, as far as MBS goes, of course, I don't know whether he's sincere or not, but he has to tread very carefully. And it's interesting to note, there was an interview with him recently where he was speaking about the reforms he was going to make in Islam. And it was clear as he was speaking about this, that he was extraordinarily nervous. And as a matter of fact, he kept on making a strange uh, gesture with his, uh, with, with his neck, as a matter of fact, 
kind of uh, jerking it up a little bit, like, uh, and doing this repeatedly throughout this part of the interview. Uh, and yet the rest of the interview, which was very lengthy, he never did that. And I think that that betrayed that he was, he's very afraid of what could happen in this regard. And maybe it has to do with his neck that he could be beheaded for apostasy if he goes too far because there is a death penalty for heresy, a death penalty for apostasy. He's treading a very dangerous line, trying to limit the power of the Wahhabis. And there, then the first part of your question, uh, a lot of people say that Islamic uh, jihad activity today all comes from the Wahhabis. There's actually some truth to that. But on the other hand, if you think about Darul Ulum Deoband right in India, you can see that there's jihad activity that has nothing to do with the Taliban. I mean, nothing, I'm sorry, everything to do with the Taliban, nothing to do with the Wahhabis. This is a different school of Islamic thought. And yet, because Islam is what it is, they come to many of the same conclusions as, as, as the Wahhabis. The uh, history of jihad also shows that Islamic jihad activity doesn't come from the Wahhabis, because long before the Wahhabis, there was jihad violence. And uh, the, jihad, the Wahhabis only arose in the 18th century, the late, latter part of the 18th century. But there was a great deal of jihad from the Mughals, from, from uh, the Ottomans, from all number, all manner of Islamic entities long before Wahhabism. As far as the American universities go, uh, I do believe that they are compromised to a tremendous degree by the very forces that MBS is trying to limit. And that might explain their hostility to him. How much of this narrative control to protect Islam is because of communist market Marxists who have taken control of who have taken control of every part of American and European society? What is in it for them to defend Islam? For they know that fi Islam finally will not let them survive, even if they make it win. A great deal is uh, of the Islamic activity is because of the communists. There's no doubt about this. Uh, they are close allies, and a lot of people are puzzled by this, but it's because actually they have a shared authoritarian view worldview. Uh, they, Islam is against freedom. Islam is the slavery of the human being. And communism is the slavery of the human being. They are both utopian philosophies. They both are going to create a paradise on earth. The communists want to create the paradise of the workers ruling and the withering away of the state. But what that means in practice is draconian punishments for any kind of dissent. And the gulags, the massive prison camps in which millions of people who, uh, anybody who steps out of line is, uh, are, anybody who steps out of line are held in these camps. So the idea is that you have a paradise created by a reign of terror. That's Islam also. Sharia, Islamic law, is supposed to be the perfect law of Allah. And so you implement it in a society, you have a perfect society. It's utopia. But at the same time, it is enforced by the beheadings, the amputations, the stonings, the reign of terror. So both the left and Islam, they love authoritarianism. And they want to establish a paradise on earth created by a reign of terror and enforced by a reign of terror. Also, the left, in trying to take over the West and destroy the United States, they love Islam because Islam lends itself to authoritarianism. If you look in Islamic history, 
There's no history of democracies or republics. Islam has a history of all over the world. Only Turkey was a secular democracy, but all, Turkey was created in the atmosphere of a rejection of political Islam. And now Turkey, of course, is re-Islamizing. So there's no democracy. There's no freedom. It's all just obey the authoritarian ruler. As a matter of fact, Muhammad said it in a tradition. Obey your ruler, even if he is an Ethiopian with a head like a raisin. Most people quote that to deal with the racism of the, of the statement. But even aside from that, it's just a blanket statement to obey the ruler. That's just what the communists want. Obey the authorities. Submit. Do whatever we tell you. You referred to some author, if I heard you correctly, who compared Muhammad with Gandhi. Yes, Karen Armstrong. Karen Armstrong oh. is a former nun, a Catholic nun, who left the uh, monastery and became uh, very enamored of Islam and wrote hagiographical biographies, too, of Muhammad and a history of uh, Islam, which is highly misleading and apologetic. Uh, would you be able well. to share some comparisons which she made between Muhammad and Gandhi? Just curious. Yes, uh, she uh, claims that Muhammad taught peace and tried to make peace, and that one of the reasons why he conquered Arabia was to pacify it and keep the various tribes of Arabia from warring against each other. Uh, but she plays fast and loose with the facts. She ignored a great deal of what is taught in Islamic tradition about uh, what Muhammad did and said, and she actively misrepresents the data. For example, she actually reviewed my book that is the subject of this lecture, The Truth About Muhammad. And in her review of it, she said, Spencer never mentions that the Quran says warfare is an awesome evil. She did not give the citation. And I've read the Quran dozens of times. I know I couldn't think of where on earth does the Quran say warfare is an awesome evil. And finally, I found it actually, in uh, chapter 2, verse 217, which I will find if you will bear with me for a moment, and then I will read it to you. Uh, what, she, what she was quoting was a passage that actually said, they ask you about warfare in the sacred month. Say, warfare during it is an awesome evil, but to turn people away from the way of Allah and to disbelieve in him and expelling his people from the sacred mosque is more serious with Allah. Now, you have to understand, see, this passage is talking about whether it is allowed to fight during the four sacred months that were in the Arab calendar before Islam. There were four months in which it was forbidden to wage war. And they ask you about warfare in the sacred month. Say, warfare during it is an awesome sin, but to turn people away from Allah and to disbelieve in him and expelling his people from the sacred mosque is more serious with the law. So what it's saying is, yes, warfare is bad, but these things are worse. When these people are persecuting you, it's worse. So therefore, you can fight them during the sacred month. That's what the passage is actually saying. And she took a little piece of it to, uh, to give the impression that Islam says that warfare is evil. Islam never says warfare is evil. All it was saying was, Warfare during this particular period is evil. However, there are worse evils in these people who are persecuting the Muslims. So warfare during the sacred month is okay.
She's a liar, in other words. You are described as anti-Muslim author. What is your response to that? And again, uh, my question that with your being banned from the United Kingdom and all these, did you also get death threats and all? Because we have a few speakers who have kind of completely gone off the media. Oh, yeah, I get many death threats. They've actually tried to kill me twice. Uh, I was the focus of two assassination attempts. One was in Texas in 2015 when a couple of ISIS gunmen from Arizona actually uh, came out of their car and they were going to, they drew their guns and they were going to come in and shoot me and a number of others, but uh, they were shot by our security forces outside our event. Uh, and then I was poisoned in Iceland in 2017 uh, by someone who slipped some things into my drink. In any case, the uh, I also actually just got some death threats quite recently on Twitter. Um, fellow was writing me in direct messages with all these videos of beheadings and then saying he was looking for my address. Um, in any case, I'm not worried about that. You know, it's not like I'm going to live forever. Uh, if people don't speak about these things, then they're just going to continue. So we have to stand up at a certain point. But in any case, I was banned from Britain actually for teaching that Islam has doctrines of warfare against unbelievers. That's actually what the letter to the, from the UK Home Office to me said. You can find it online at my website, Jihad Watch, and read the whole thing. Uh, it's really just saying, in other words, because you say unwelcome truths, you are not welcome in the country. As far as being anti-Muslim, I reject that uh, very strongly. I am not anti-Muslim. That would be against some human beings, and I'm not against any human beings. I'm against this ideology. To say that I'm anti-Muslim would be to say that uh, opponents of the Nazis in Europe in 1940 were anti-German, uh, and that would have been ridiculous. Uh, they were fighting for humanity against a great inhumanity, and that is what I'm doing. There is one uh, one question here that is quite important, I think. Um, so uh, you, um, uh, Mr. Spencer, you have done great work about the life of Muhammad as per the Islamic sources, but also, about the genesis of Islam as per other sources of history. And these two are quite in conflict. Now, um, given the more recent knowledge uh, by scholars like um, uh, Christoph Luxemburg and so on, um, about, about the, the alternative, the non-Islamic history of Islam, uh, the historicity and at any rate the live details of Muhammad are a bit problematic. Uh, so this is a, a very wide topic. I have many questions about it, but in general, you see, where is your thinking going in reconciling these two uh, views of history? I don't believe, thank you. That's a very important question. And uh, I'm honored by your being present here. In any case, there is no reconciling those two. Uh, I, uh, in, uh, many people actually say that I have contradicted myself by writing the truth about Muhammad and then writing did Muhammad exist and questioning the historicity of the Islamic texts. Actually, these are two separate inquiries. When we are discussing what Muslims believe, which is very important to know because they are acting upon those beliefs every day around the world, then we have to know what is the content of the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sira literature, the biography, biographical literature about Muhammad. 
However, as a separate issue, we can look at whether those various sources have any historical value, and they have very little historical value. The traditions about Muhammad's words and deeds, although they are normative for Islamic law and behavior, they have they actually date from around 200 years generally after Muhammad is supposed to have lived. And there is no record of Muhammad in contemporary sources from the seventh century when he is supposed to have lived. So it's rather like discussing the Shakespeare play Macbeth. We could have a discussion, we could have a show like this about Macbeth. And we could say, Macbeth plotted to kill Duncan. And Macbeth said, uh, is this a dagger I see before me? Uh, it's handled toward my hand, and so on. And discuss all of Macbeth's motivations and his goals and his activities. But that still would be, it's just a play. It's not history. And so while we can discuss what Macbeth said and did, that does not give it any historical value. What we have with Islam is rather as if there were a large group of people who thought that the play Macbeth was wholly writ and that Macbeth was absolutely a historical figure and were imitating it. And then it would be two inquiries. One would be what Macbeth said and did, which would be very important to know to deal with these people. And second, is this really actual history or is it just a play? And in the case of Muhammad, there is no evidence that any such person existed. He is a creation of various factions that created the Arab empire for their own goals and purposes. Unfortunately, one of their primary goals was to create a warrior group that would preserve and expand and strengthen their empire. And so they sanctified warfare and conquest as being pleasing to Allah. And this is why we are discussing this today and why it remains a problem. But there is no historical value to these stories. So we have a question. Any your views about the Deoband, the Deobandis? Well, of course, they're the inspiration. They're the uh, the source for the Taliban. The uh, Islamic theology that the Taliban hold comes from the Darul Ulum Deoband. Comes from the Deobandi point of view. It's very. It's it's essentially identical to the Wahhabis, but it's not the Wahhabis. And the reason why two Islamic groups that are distinct, like the Deobandis and the Wahhabis, have essentially the same point of view is because the Islamic texts are very clear. And they do teach warfare against unbelievers. They do teach the subjugation of the unbelievers under the hegemony of Islamic rule. There, there is no sect of Islam that does not teach this. People speak about the Ahmadiyya or the Ismaili Shia in this connection as being peaceful. These are very small groups that do not have influence in the wider Islamic community. We're talking about less than 1% or 2% of Islam worldwide. The mainstream, the large groups of Muslims, both Sunni and Shiite, all teach this warfare and conquest and subjugation. We have a question that barring fears and threats, what could be the reasons why some people voluntarily convert to Islam? People are taught a lot of nonsense to convert to Islam. Uh, there have been many converts to Islam, as a matter of fact, who become disillusioned. I uh, was in uh, contact several years ago with uh, a man who was a very prominent convert to Islam in the United States at one time. 
As a matter of fact, he won several awards from Islamic groups for his writing about Islam. But he ultimately left Islam. And he told me that the Islam that he was taught was not the true Islam. He was taught that Islam was all about peace and brotherhood. And as a black American, he was very interested in it because it was a rejection of racism. Then he became a Muslim. And he said he had only read a little bit of the Quran before he became a Muslim. This is very common. And it's the same thing with many women. They are told that Islam teaches dignity and modesty. And that's the reason for the covering, that a woman has her own dignity and is not just a, a tool for men. Of course, it's just exactly the opposite. And the covering is all part of that mindset. But many of these converts do not, do not see this until they get in. And then it's too late because you have the death penalty for leaving Islam. So many converts become all the more fanatical as they embrace the new religion fully. And there are many converts as a result who have been involved in jihad terror activity all around the world. Uh, but there are also some converts who become disillusioned and they leave Islam after a short period. Uh, because the dawah, the proselytizing that is, that is done to bring them in, is often quite different from the reality of Islam. And they only find out about these things like the prohibition of music, the subjugation of women, all these things, once they're in. I also have a view that uh, any uh, why we are attracted not just to Islam, but to uh, all the Abrahamic religions is the kind of support group that we find in the church, in the I'm community, sorry. is the kind of support group that we find in the community. Because oh, yes. in other religions, you're largely left on your own. Here, they will, uh, you know, the, the, the Gurdwara or the church or the mosque, the, your local area mosque will take care of you if you're not doing well in life. There's no doubt about that. And that's very attractive, particularly in the West today, where there's no religion and there's a radical individualism that leaves people often atomized and isolated and they feel alienated from the entire world, then they can convert and suddenly they have a group of people who love them and care about them. And so I think the importance of that cannot be underestimated. It only becomes a problem when you have uh, people who love them and care about them tell them, now in order to please Allah, you need to do violence to unbelievers. And, uh, how about the psychological condition where people like to be told what to do, they like to be subjugated? Well, that can't be underestimated either. This is extraordinarily important, and people don't like to discuss it. But the fact is that there are many, many human beings who would prefer slavery to freedom. And they prefer to have a worldview that everything is set out for them, and they don't have to make any difficult choices, because it's all there already done. And so Islam, as a total explanation of everything in life, and they have laws and rules for every aspect of human behavior, it can be very comforting for some people. Because they like having a rule for every aspect of human behavior. And then they can know exactly what they should put, they should do every day. Ah, good evening, sir. It was wonderful to uh, listen to you. Never heard uh, so many aspects of uh, Muhammad earlier. Now, this victimhood seems to be a very special characteristics of uh, Muslims all over the world. And how much of it is really inherited from uh, the Christian forebears in Europe? Oh, victimhood. Oh, 
Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know the provenance of victimhood, uh, except I do suspect that it comes from actually not Christianity, but the uh, struggle against racism in the United States. Uh, racism, of course, is the national trauma of the United States. And it uh, has created the idea that there are people who are victimized who need special assistance and special accommodation. The Islamic groups in the United States and now also in Europe have made very skillful use of this, portraying themselves as victims of racist Islamophobic counter-terror measures and, necessary, and, and thus needing special treatment and accommodation because they are so discriminated against in the society. This is just playing on the uh, historical controversies in the United States. But in terms of Islam, it doesn't have any substance. There haven't even been Muslims in the United States until relatively recently, and they have not suffered and do not suffer widespread discrimination and harassment. The problem is that the society is now constituted in a way that victimhood is prized and valued and is essentially currency to gain, to gain power and influence. And so the more of it you have, the more power and influence you can get. And so they're playing the game very skillfully. That of course, we see this incredible obtuseness of governments all over the world, leaving aside a couple of governments like Japan and maybe Poland, who are very clear about how the Islamic uh, population has to be managed, so to speak. But somehow the entire liberal world, and even India for that matter, as much as people glorify the Modi government, fact remains the same kind of obtuseness and, um, if I may say, mulishness uh, on persisting with uh, according them this uh, legitimacy in the name of liberal democracy continues. And what is the way out that you seek from here? Because, I mean, this is really... Um, I mean, this seems to be no end to it. No matter what Muslims do, what they they even express themselves clearly against the very governments that uh, the very nations where they live and they find uh, um, they find refuge, they speak against them. Yet, I mean, governments all over. I mean, they refuse to change their outlook. It's a liberal democratic trap, if I may put it that way. Well, I do believe that. Certainly, the response of virtually all the governments around the world to Islam is based on falsehoods, and that consequently it cannot stand. I don't know when or how it will fall, but I do know that the fact that it's refuted on a more or less daily basis is a sign of hope, that eventually I think it will become impossible for governments in India, in Europe, in North America, everywhere around the world to ignore and deny this problem. Uh, unfortunately, probably the jihad will have advanced a great deal more before it becomes impossible to ignore or deny. I learned Farsi for a while, uh, Persian, and my teacher was a Shia, and he used to say that this, uh, he, he had a very clear distinction. He says, Shias are the one who gave us literature and arts and culture, and Sunnis were Arabs, they were tribes. And he gives the example of how Persia was captured initially. He said that it was the center of culture in the Ottoman Empire, all, all over Asia, in fact. And then these Arabs, they came on their camels, they had the muscle car, they subjugated Iran. And uh, so it's like a PhD professor being a slave and the uncouth 
illiterate servant becoming the master suddenly. And this situation could not go on for very long. So when Ali came, uh, successor of Muhammad, he, he saw that it is very difficult to like continue this kind of uh, arrangement. So he asked them that, okay, you accept Islam, but you can continue your own uh, traditions. Yeah, well, there's no doubt there's a lot of anti-Arab sentiment in, in Iran. Uh, and uh, that Iran, Persia had a tremendous history and tradition long before Islam, which is unlike Arabia or uh, other areas of the Islamic world. And so there is resentment to a tremendous degree against Sunni Islam because it's identified with the Arabs and against the Arabs among many Persians. Uh, at the same time, of course, we can see from the Islamic Republic that there are some Shiite Persians who are quite fanatical in Islam. And there, there's a phenomenon, it's also true in Pakistan, that a lot of non-Arab Muslims tend to become even more fanatical than the Arabs to try to prove that they're just as good Muslims as the Arabs. Uh, and so there, there are all these things happening, but there's tremendous discontent with Islam itself in Iran today because of the Islamic Republic and because people who have lived under the Islamic Republic since 1979 have seen what Islam is all about and they don't like it. And so there is a resurgence of Zoroastrianism, the worship of the fire in Iran because they are many Persians in secret are recovering their ancestral religion and a tremendous falling away from, from Islam. As a matter of fact, there was a poll in the Islamic Republic of Iran, quite recently, within the last few years, where uh, the number of people who professed Islam was in the 30s, uh, the percentage, about 35% of people in Iran said they were Muslims, which is extraordinary because officially 99% of the people in Iran are Muslims. But a tremendous number have uh, left Islam for various other things, including fire worship. One of the things the American forces in Afghanistan f uh, found was an American who had uh, become a Taliban. Uh, John Walker. Uh, John Walker, yeah. And so uh, uh, it, one would think that people would be interested in following up with him and you know whether his uh, views have changed or not, but nothing is heard about him. Do you have any idea what uh, he's doing now and uh, what his views yes. are? Yes, I do. Uh, he was freed from prison uh, last year, I believe it was, or maybe two years ago. And he uh, wrote an article recently about uh, Islam, Jihad, Afghanistan, the Taliban, making it very clear that he hadn't changed his views at all. Uh, he has only been reinforced in Islam, in his Islamic views. It's noteworthy that he's a convert and that uh, he came out of the rootless and traditionless individualism of society in Southern California and the materialism of it and embraced Islam as being an all-encompassing answer. Uh, now, because he has waged jihad against the United States and served time in prison, he's a, a hero to some Muslims. And I think we will likely be hearing more about him, more from him in the future. Robert, what do you think it will take for all these ex-Muslims um, in Iran, for example, to come out together? What can be done to encourage them coming together? You know, the Islamic Republic was in very bad shape just last year. 
the Trump administration had placed sanctions on Iran that were creating great difficulty for the Iranian economy. And uh, people warned against this and said, this will just turn people more away from America and make them embrace the Islamic Republic. But it had actually the opposite effect. And the people were demonstrating in Iran, as they are again now, saying, you're giving our money to Syria and Lebanon, to Hezbollah and to Assad, and you should be giving it to the Iranian people. And so it's possible, of course, now the Biden administration has given the Islamic Republic a reprieve and removed the sanctions and is going to restore the nuclear deal. But it may have been quite close to the toppling of the Islamic Republic just last year, and it still could happen.